consecrate this ground, this world of light. We curse the abominations of darkness. We block the passage of evil. May the old devils depart. May they burn in the fires of their own damnation. May they freeze in the infinite cold and darkness of their own hideous creation. Isn't that kind of insulting? I guess it's supposed to be. I mean, we're trying to get rid of them. Maybe you should do it one more time. From the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asked, What can we learn from movies to enhance our RPG experience? This season, we are all about Kids on Bikes movies, where kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing it, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. I'm Rafe Telsch, film critic. And I'm Drew Meyer, gaming enthusiast, and today we are talking 1987's The Gate, written by Michael Nankin and directed by Tibor Takis and starring Stephen Dorff, Krista Denton, and Louis Tripp, among others. Now, this conversation will contain spoilers. You have been warned. Bum, bum, uh, but first, <laughs> uh, but first, uh, because this is a podcast about movies and role-playing games, let's talk a little bit about movies and role-playing games. Rafe, have you watched any movies uh, in the last two weeks that you think myself or our listeners should know about? You know, I uh, totally forgot about this part of the podcast since it's a late edition, uh, and I, I'm racking my brain. That I, I don't think I've seen any movies in the past two weeks, other than movies we've already talked about. Like, I went and saw Guardians of the Galaxy 3 today with my son, so I have seen that a second time. I do recommend it a lot more than I did when we talked about it a couple weeks ago. I think I liked it more on the second viewing. But other than that, I've been watching a lot of TV shows and preparing for the end of the school year, and that takes takes, you know, the time. Uh, absolutely. And to your point, um, because my wife is a college professor and it is the last two weeks have been the last two weeks of the school year, or at least the semester, uh, she has been spending a lot of time grading papers. And when she does that, I need to go downstairs and be quiet. So uh, while you may not have been watching a lot of movies, I have watched 12 movies in the last two weeks. <laughs> now, if Letterboxd app uh, is to be believed. I've actually seen 16 movies, um, but those last four are the first four episodes of the Sherlock series, written by Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss, among others. Oh, yeah. Um, They are all, of course, at feature film length at 90 minutes. They are part of the letterbox. So I I, I was, as kind of a joke, I was like, well, let's see if they're in there. Oh, they are. So I'm counting them. Um, But I've watched a wide variety. Uh, I also graduated grad school uh, in the last two weeks. And so, yay, (laughs) that ordeal is over. Uh, And my family came to visit me and brought me 500 DVDs. So I have been going through these DVDs, cleaning them, deciding if I want them, adding them to my collections. And I've been watching movies while I've been doing that. So I've watched a lot of stuff. I did eventually get around to uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Uh, eh, it was fun. Um, I revisited some classics. Uh, I, I, I rewatched Slither, which I hadn't seen in a while. Which I so badly want to go back to after seeing Guardians of the Galaxy twice in yes. the past few weeks. Yeah, well, it was a conversation with Guardians that kind of made me go, I really yep. want to see that. In fact, I watched three movies in a row that involve uh, alien invasions that kind of drifted in from space. So I started with um, The Day of the Triffids, which is fantastic, oh, and I classic. did Slither. And then 1956, the original uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Rafe. Yes. yes. I had never seen it before. Oh. I know. Isn't this in- incredible? So it's one of those films that's kind of part of the zeitgeist where, like, you know the story, mm-hmm. you've seen the reviews, all the classic 
horror movie books that I've read and all the documentaries I've watched that always shows scenes from it. And I have a really good memory for movies. Clearly, I, I, it's something I care about. And I thought for sure I had watched it. But as I'm watching the movie, none of it uh, seemed familiar. So <laughs> I, I clearly hadn't seen it. So I watched that for the first time, which is a surprise for me. Um, you know, we've had some classics. I watched some not-so-classics. I did watch um, a film called Hell Comes to Frogtown, um, which is a post-apocalyptic <laughs> film with uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, uh, oh. where he has to go to Frogtown and save some women. Uh, I've also watched some bad movies. I, I don't need to be discussing bad movies, but I do want to say this to folks. Don't do what we did, which is pay money to see Invitation to a Murder. Uh, we saw a Agatha Christie-style period piece and said, well, it's like six bucks. We, haven't, we don't normally pay for movies because we have these streaming services, but that's sort of what we're in the mood for. Oh, this was bad. It was bad. It was, you know, you have movies like Snakes on a Plane, and then they have the, the direct-to-video knockoff Snakes on a Train. Right. This was Snakes on a Train for Agatha Christie murder movies. Um, oh, God. It, yeah. So just, yeah. Invitation to a murder. Don't, don't watch it. <laughs> How about role-playing games? Uh, my group met this uh, past week uh, in what may have been one of the worst sessions I've ever run. I was ill-prepared as it was, and then r- just a few hours before we were supposed to meet, found out about a local community tragedy that impacts uh, people that I know. So I was not in the right mindset for running a game, uh, to the point that I apologized to my group after it was done and everybody had gone home. Uh, and uh, as usual, we are our own worst critics. Everybody in the group seemed to have a good time. They found lots of things to praise, but uh, that's that's where I've been with RPGs uh, over the past few weeks as well. Again, I'm end of the school year. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I'm, I'm sorry that that happened, happened to you. Let me backtrack just one second, though, sure. Drew. Because end of the school year also means beginning of summer. I still have two weeks Left. So by the time we'll record the intermission, I could have held off on this until the intermission. But <laughs> Drew has his challenge that he tries to do every year. He tries to do a new movie, a movie new to him every week, right? Yes. I try during the summer to do the same thing, but I do it like daily because I have the summer off. So if you have any recommendations for movies I should be seeing, please sound off in our social media. We'll give you those uh, tidbits at the end of the episode, but I could use recommendations on movies, especially stuff that I can stream. Yeah, yeah, that's always an important part of that. Uh, I haven't done any role-playing games uh, in the two weeks. I'm a part of, I have a one in-person group that's uh, almost all uh, faculty from the university, uh, and of course, end of the semester, everyone's grading, so they couldn't do it. Uh, I have a online game that isn't Dungeons and Dragons uh, that is run by some friends that I have, you know, haven't seen in person in years, but one of them just became a father, so Mazel Tov for that, so we canceled that one. So it's been two weeks without RPGs other than me reading rule books online, um, but I did have some kind of adjacent role-playing game experiences. Um, this Saturday, I went to a yard sale and got a bag full of Chuck E. Cheese tokens. What does it have to do with role-playing games? Well, with kids on bikes, I find that the tokens and the tickets make uh, fantastic adversity tokens. Sure. Um, it really plays up, especially if you're doing a late 70s, early 80s, early 90s sort of game. Um, that just adds to it, you know, mixtapes, uh, Trapper Keepers, Showbiz tokens, or I guess Chuck E. Cheese tokens, um, and, and the like. So getting that at a yard sale was pretty cool. I just saw an advertisement for something called Asteroid Dice, which are large fist-sized foam dice. Uh, they roll just fine, but you can also throw them at people. Um, uh, it, it's just something 
fun about squeezable, tossable dice. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I've started listening to 10-minute tabletop news. Uh, There's a company called Total Party Chill. Uh, They distill the week's worth of news in the RPG world. So that's kind of cool. And then, you know, normally we would mention this on uh, what's getting our attention on Kickstarter or crowdfunding. But um, Evil Hat Games just launched Girl by Moonlight. So if you like Magic Girl anime and stories that's a new role-playing game that's come out by the time we record our intermission that will be over so Mm. you know you got two weeks might as well jump on that one uh that's kind of it it for me i i did get an email from a uh kids on bikes group that i was a part of uh expressing interest in in rekindling that i know (laughs) i yes well okay so i of course got that same email i'm very excited about that as well um but rather than mention i thought well maybe we should actually have a meeting first before before we actually start getting excited but no i i would be lying if i didn't uh mention that my whiteboard adjacent to my desk is now covered in scrolls for notes for things i want to do once that gets started again right (laughs) uh surprisingly enough i have not listened to very many podcasts recently so i got nothing uh podcast wise to mention anything on your end uh no nothing i can think of all right, then let's jump into end of, it. End of the school year. <laughs> end of the school year. Yeah, rightfully so. Uh, this time next year, we're going to have the same message for you. Um, <laughs> Rafe, I'm so excited about this episode. Uh, again, 1987's The Gate. Why did you... Ch- no, no, before I ask you why you chose this, uh, I need you to give me the elevator pitch. Right. What is the elevator pitch? You're in an elevator. You only have a few seconds. You want to sell somebody on 1987's The Gate. What is your elevator pitch? Uh, a pair of young boys inadvertently open the portal to a hell dimension uh, with demons attempting to come through and uh, create a foothold on the earth. Yeah, sounds cute. Sounds demons, like awesome, <laughs> awesome little, awesome little buggers. It's like, oh, it sounds like a really horrifying movie, uh, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, why did you choose this film? Uh, because I hadn't seen it. Uh, because it was on the Kids on Bikes list. There was there were two movies that were on there that, like, every Kids on Bikes list that I looked at, I kept looking and kept looking. I wanted something different mm. uh, than my nostalgia picks. And I'd had good luck earlier in the season when I picked uh, The Kid Who Would Be King blind. So I figured, why not pick this one? Everybody said it's good. Uh, I do have one friend who said they thought I would never pick it for this podcast, I think is what they put in their <laughs> notes. But... Uh, I, you know, it's 80s is my era, and uh, somehow this had eluded me, so it gave me the excuse to pull the trigger on watching it. Well, having watched it uh, in the last two weeks, uh, we sometimes ask this question. Sometimes it's obvious. Rafe, do you think this is a Kids on Bikes movie? Well, considering the very first shot of the movie is a kid riding a bike down the street, uh, considering the parents go away leaving the kids with complete agency with what's going on, uh, really the location isn't 100% central to the story, and yet it is because, you know, hellmouth type thing. Uh, yeah, this is a Kids on Bikes movie, definitely. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> so much so that I was like, I think listeners could could grasp that I was kind of excited when you, you announced it last episode. Yeah. So, uh, when was the last, uh, when was the first time that you watched The Gate? We are recording this on uh, May 29th to come out uh, in the first week of June. Uh, first time I watched this was May 28th. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I uh, sat down and watched it for the very first time last night. 
Uh, I've got my my pages of notes here uh, from watching it. Some of it is stream of consciousness reaction to what's going on, on screen. Some of it is stream of consciousness analysis of what's going on, on screen. But uh, I I I have to admit. I enjoyed this movie, and I'm more than a little disappointed that The Gate 2 isn't streaming anywhere. <laughs> oh, I've yeah. heard terrible things about it, but I, I want to see it now, because I enjoyed I this one so much. I know. I saw it for the first time on March 22nd of 2022. So even though this is a classic, a yeah. classic of the sleepover horror genre, youth horror genre, this is one that eluded me for some time. And I thought for years, I think when I watched it last year, I think my note in my review was, I thought for years that I had seen it in the same way that I thought I had seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one, and the 1978 one. It turns out when I actually watched it, I didn't. So I don't remember what film I did see that I thought was the gate. It's possible Mm -hmm. when we watch gate two trespassers, it'll turn out that I watched that one instead, (laughs) but no, this is a, a classic. I should have watched it as a kid. I did not. So it's been only a year for me. I will say, however, in that year, I have watched it three times. I could see myself watching it again some point soon. I I enjoyed it. (laughs) Yes. You enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. However, when you look at Rotten Tomatoes, uh, not everyone enjoyed it. It got 55% on the tomato meter with only 11 reviews, an audience score of 45% with over 5,000 reviews, which I find uh, astonishing and reprehensible. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I'm Rafe Tell's film critic, and I'm here to tell you that film critics don't always know what they're talking about. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, listen, anytime we review a movie, we talk about the... Because we don't want to spend the entire time talking about the entire film. Start to finish, we will talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. The highlights, the bad bits, and the worst bits. Let's... Because we really are about positivity here. Rafe, let's talk a little bit about some of the good bits. What is good about The Gate? Well, from a storytelling standpoint, I I really enjoy the way the movie was laid up. It actually had kind of a a subtle setup, like aspects like the fact that he cut his hand and that therefore creates the blood that's needed to open the gate. That's subtle as, as all get out. Like there was no point where it was like, you know, until later where you're told that. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, the the story about the workman is just, you know, kind of a throwaway, like, trying to, you know, haunted kids' story, trying to scare each other type thing, and then that has a payoff. It is it is very subtly laid out until it isn't. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then suddenly, like, you see the gun, and you know that's going to be literally a Chekhov's gun, the whole thing with the Thunderbolt. Uh, like, I predicted that you know, about 20 minutes into the movie, sure. that kind of stuff. It's like, it was this nice, subtle setup until it then decided to go over the top. But I appreciated that, that it didn't feel the need to be over the top from the get-go, which I liked that. I think when I watched this, I described it as Evil Dead for kids. In Rather than a Cabin in the Woods, it is a house in suburbia. But other than that, it's clear that the inspiration for this film is an Evil Dead sort of level of horror. Or a Evil John Dead Carpenter its- level of horror. Or, well, see, John Carpenter doesn't... I, I can't believe I'm going to say this. a unique style. A unique style, yes, and a unique sense of humor. But the humor in this one is very much a kid's horror film. The things mm-hmm. that happen are horrific, but they're also tempered in a, in a way that I would, in the same way that I wouldn't mind showing a 10-year-old, say, Lost Boys... This is a film that I think is a perfect, pun intended, gateway horror film, right? (laughs) So I love that. And I think it's one of the reasons that I have watched it three times in a year, not only because of the podcast, but 
it's it's something really enjoyable and yeah the storytelling follows an almost kind of kid logic stream of consciousness mm-hmm. and you're absolutely right in the middle of the second act they start to explain they have to explain everything that's happened i know a lot of people who who online have said they watched this when they were like between the ages of six and ten sure um because it was the 80s and that is exactly the sort of thing that happens so i enjoy the fact that somewhere down the line i could recommend this to someone who's they're like, well, my kid wants to get into horror movies, but I don't want anything that has, I don't know, too much sex, too much violence, too much profanity. So that sort of thing. I, I think it's it's really great. Uh, what else you got that's good? I also like the fact that, the again, talking about the, the layout of the, the, the structure of the film, it is a slow build mm. until then it just goes nuts. Like it is a mm-hmm. slow kind of anticipatory. It is laying down that foundation. It is explaining any exposition that you need. And then suddenly when it switches into horror mode, it is just nuts from then on out. I mean, I you had within less than a five minute period of time, Angus, the whole, the whole uh, Angus thing, uh, the hands, uh, under the bed, the mom and dad at the door, the demons appearing, the phone burning, all, all within less than a five-minute period of time. Like, it yeah. is just full throttle once it reaches that, and I appreciated that as well. Yeah, and we'll we'll go into a little bit more detail in the third act, but that sort of is the the kind of the denouement of the second act, right? It's like yep. the, the, you realize what's going on, they, the kids realize what is going on. Then there's like this kind of calm for a brief moment and then the last 23 minutes of the movie is non-stop and it sort of goes into a big special effects uh buffet um and that's one of the things that i want to talk about that's really good i think given the budget and it's a very small budget for yes. this film this is an amazing film special Absolutely. effects wise just an amazing film now granted both copies that you and i watched were the recently released uh, special editions they put on YouTube. So it has been cleaned up and it has been... I think, I want to say it's Arrow video may be the ones that put out the special edition and then released it onto YouTube. We don't get the, the, the value-added material. We don't get the director's commentary. And I will say this, I really really want to get by this for mm-hmm. the director's commentary. I'm I am fascinated by independent filmmakers or low budget films that really make an impact. I want to hear their stories and there's just not enough stuff online. But the special effects on this, uh, they're just phenomenal. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about the individual who's responsible for the visual effects um here after this segment. Uh, anything else good? Uh well, just kind of tying on to the end of that cuz I I think the special effects not only I mean we're we're saying they're phenomenal but they're phenomenal by a 2023 standard. Like yeah. most of the effects, there's a couple of composite shots that are a little dodgy now, but most of the visual effects hold up to what they do today. And I I said it at the the top of kind of the lead into this, but I I'm saying it now is one of my other really, you know, the good about this is those demons are cool as hell. The they little, really the, are. They were just so phenomenal. For for something that is essentially a rubber mask, the expressiveness of them, mm-hmm. which isn't done with the face. Their face is stuck. It's frozen. But the yeah. expressiveness of them through their movement, it yeah. was just, I loved it. I, I want one of those things, man. <laughs> it, it, I have looked on Etsy. You can, you can get stuff like that. It's, I'm sure. It's kind of impressive. This is one of those films that it has a cult following. It's not huge, but it, it's devoted. I don't remember if we've discussed my love of Ray Harryhausen. I think we may have mentioned it on, on you know. Yes, not, we, have, we have talked about it. Yeah. There's stop motion in this film. 
Yes. And sometimes stop motion works and sometimes stop motion doesn't. I think the stop motion is unbelievable. Oh, sure. In this film. Yeah. No, it's it's really good. And I was just gobsmacked when I saw it for the first time. And I was just like, I cannot believe this isn't CGI. I can't believe it. It feels like right. someone like I want to I want to get a VHS copy of this and watch the original home release and see if it was, it's really bad just to draw comparisons <laughs> i wonder if the original untouched version is on the uh on the blu-rays that just got released we always do it and so we probably should do it now i think we should talk about the actors uh, the three main leads this is a movie that there's only two adults in this entire film right uh and the rest are kids and they're all teenagers or younger right and uh i think for independent low budget filming they do a really good job <laughs> my my bad is that the uh the acting and particularly the dialogue it's more the script than the acting sure uh the the dialogue as i wrote down here this is why i set set up a minute ago what i set up the dialogue is so 80s horror reminds me of the phantasm movies john carpenter and the evil dead <laughs> <laughs> wow uh, if you told me I have a I have a uh, 80s horror movie you haven't seen yet reminds me of John Carpenter Phantasm and Evil Dead I'm like sold right I mean it's for the for the genre it is appropriate it is exactly what the genre does you know it's nice to know that Steven Dorff never really could act <laughs> he's a young kid in this film he is now, I don't admittedly mean, I don't mean to pay, I've seen him as an adult and he's not the best actor he's he's really. Uh, done a lot of the the adult roles he's gotten because he looks good, uh, honestly. Well, I mean, you know, this is this movie is no Blade, but um, right. <laughs> and admittedly, compared to the youth actors from It, right. and especially the youth actors from Stand by Me, there isn't a comparison, right? But I think given what they have, and given the the tone of the film, which is they never really need to be scared, scared no. because we, the audience are very rarely scared, scared. I think we might be as, as you know, six to 10 year olds, but I think it's, I think their acting is good for the film. Uh, I, I guess is maybe a more appropriate way of saying it, but I do want to say this. You, you talked about the script, the dialogue you're right is maybe a little genre clunky, but I think the characters and the character relationships is exceptional but i want to talk about that a little bit more when we start looking at at the characters individually for the draft so uh you have told me one thing that is bad uh give me another thing that's bad you know it's funny i'm staying on story so much today but the the story has its problems Mm -hmm. like you know he is so desperate to call mom and dad and uh, glenn is so desperate to call mom and dad and so desperate to call mom and dad and the sister says no and the sister says no and then the sister goes off to the mall at any point he could pick up the phone and call mom and dad and he doesn't <laughs> like doesn't even occur to anybody well yeah it's just it's little things like that i mean again it it is a product of that genre at that time period that you're not going to get a ton of logic associated with it but when you when you compare it with a lot of the movies that we've been watching for this that is a downfall for it yeah i mean well you get scenes and there's a little bit of kind of dreamlike quality or kind of odd flow like you know we see all these moths come out of the pit and then the next cut scene to terry putting some moths in a jar and the moths it's never really clear what the moths are nope um are they the herald of something bad are they something good that has escaped 
Um, they can hold their breath for a really long time. We do know that. Um, <laughs> yeah, some stuff isn't explained, but, and this is something I frequently will say about horror movies, I'm not always a big fan when everything is explained to me. Yeah. I sometimes like to be able to have that conversation afterwards. For instance, I mentioned the Tremors film uh, in our last episode uh, until the second I guess second movies or the television show or whatever. We don't know where the tremors come from or what they are. I really like that. You know, like I don't need to have it explained to me to, to be able to appreciate it because the plot is not dependent on knowing what they are and where they come from. No, that's actually been one of my criticisms of Hollywood over the past 15 years is the need to explain everything. It's part of like their, uh, the Halloween remake is so bad because it's trying to justify just why Michael Myers is evil. And it's like, no, Donald Pleasant's telling us he's evil is enough. We don't need a backstory on him. And it's like Hollywood just wants to explain everything. And we don't, as the audience, that's not what we need. We don't necessarily even want it half the time. And our point of view characters in this film are children. Right. Like, there are children under the age of 16 who probably have led a fairly sheltered life. Sure. Uh, and so they may never, you know, there might actually be logical explanations. But if we don't have an album cover to explain uh, what's happening, then they never know. They just have to kind of survive it. Um, you do have to love that it cashes in on the satanic panic. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. I, I think a full point of of my score of this movie is going to be based off of cashing in on, on the satanic panic. Sure. Um. I do have a bad, um, sure. like Super 8 and like Frog Dreaming, the gate ends, like we've already said spoilers, ends its first act, our third act, with a single protagonist. Yes. You know, that's a bummer. I definitely, you and I both agree that if you're going to set up a team of kids, let the team of kids solve the problem together of each one of them. I will say this, every kid involved sorry our three protagon our three main protagonists each do something to solve a solve the problem in one form or another or make it worse depending this is not and we'll talk more about this when we get into the draft i I had planned on it but this is not your very typical kids on bikes team setup where like this is the kid who's good at this and this is the kid who's good Mm -hmm. at that and that's actually one of the things i like about it is that it it isn't as archetypal as some of the other movies we've watched yeah i i think it has two of the greatest kids on bikes kids in any movie. Uh, there are two characters in this film that are two of my favorites from all the movies that we've watched. I, uh, I have been racking my brain to figure out. You said on the intermission when I announced this, you said you already knew who your draft pick oh, was yeah. going to be. And I, I, I think I know who your draft pick is going to be, too. But I've I've wavered on it a couple of times. Here's so. the thing. There's two greats in here. There are. And regardless of which one I take, you're getting a really good draft pick. Sure. Sure. Um, sure. The the last line of the movie is my last bad, and that is, you're my best buddies, and then fake laughter. No, um, the last line of the movie is, think they'll notice. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Which it's should cuts. be the ending line of every Kids on Bikes adventure <laughs> <That's>, ever. <laughs> that's true, as, as the eight passes up. Yeah, you know, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're absolutely right, because the dog is walking back with the shoe, which I think is an amazing callback. <laughs> And right. there's another tree growing in the gate, which right. is, I think, uh, is both beautiful and ominous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the the line, you're my best buddies and laughing. Have you watched The Room? I, I've never seen The Room. Okay. Well, Rafe, you need to see The Room. It's, Do it I is really? A, <laughs> yes, but you don't, you cannot see it alone. You have to go to a midnight showing with, uh, with like 300 ravenous The Room fans. 
um, to really get the full extent of it. But you know, a, he was here in Roanoke like last year, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I may have performed the room live with several of the actors. Anyway, um, that that's another story. But but there's a, there's a kind of level of that to the, the the penultimate line. Anyway, we've talked about the good. We've talked about the bad, and those are usually involving the film, what we see on the screen, but there's usually the ugly, and that falls into almost a meta-commentary. I think there's a couple of ugly in here that we should probably discuss. Uh, Some of which we have talked about so many times before. So many times. Uh, Yeah, so let's let's talk about the ugly, Rafe. What you got? Okay, lack of diversity. Lack of diversity. Which you brought up with our very first film and has definitely, I mean, again, it's a product of its time. That was, that's the way they made movies then. It's still a problematic issue, especially when you watch it through the lens of today. Sure. Um, problematic language used oh, in yeah. a negative context and didn't need to be there. Oh, absolutely. Well, you and I were both fairly young at this time period. And again, this is, we see a lot of movies where this is like kind of the norm. And I think a lot of kids, I used this problematic language because I was shown movies with people using the problematic language. Mm. And I feel bad about it, but I also, you know, like, we, we grow as people. Yeah, there's there's a couple. Now, is it as bad as some of the movies that we aren't going to be talking about that, that, are, that are part of the genre? No, definitely not. There, I think there's three instances uh, and only one actual proper curse word. Mm-hmm. Is it enough to not show somebody the film if it, they're relatively young i would be more inclined to avoid showing them this because of that language than the horror well let me let me back i'm all over the place tonight i'm going to backtrack again you asked why did i pick this movie yes and and that is uh one of the movies that was on my list uh originally uh was monster squad right and which is the movie i was alluding to (laughs) and i had somebody pick that for my other podcast uh, never got an episode recorded, so I, w- I watched that movie because somebody picked it for for an episode, and I found the language problematic to the point that I didn't want to pick it for this podcast. And so this was kind of my, I, I want something in that vein, but I have not seen this one. Let's go with this one. So the language is definitely worse in other movies. It still didn't need to be there. Agreed. Uh, I think this movie really holds a, a terrifying mirror to the face of parenting in the 1980s. Um, now, I, I say this as a as a child who was roughly the same age as these kids sure. in this film. I also was left alone for several days. I do not have an older sister to take care of me. So, you know, not at 10 years old, but by the time I was 16, I was definitely hanging out in the house over long weekends without with an adult. However, we did not have a loaded shotgun within uh, easy range. That is uh, it something... It wasn't loaded, to be fair. It wasn't loaded. They <laughs> had to was load ammunition it. in the same container. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they had to learn how to load it. They didn't appear to have a problem learning, figuring that out. So at some point in time, I'm guessing they maybe hopefully had training. I have mentioned on several times my dislike of movies where kids are shot by guns or wield guns themselves. And so in this situation, I get it, but it's it's one of those things where this would not have seemed out of place in the 1980s. Also, no neighbors ever come by to check. It's like, well, hey there, Glenn. Hey there, Al. Your parents just called me to check on on you to see how you were folks were doing. Everything fine? Nice demons you got there. Have a great day. You know, so. But so here's the thing. You list this as an ugly, which I have to laugh at because I would list it as a good because after the last couple of movies where we had parents who were around but just were emotionally distant and negligent, it was a nice change in that to have parents who just went away to give the kids agency. And I didn't, I didn't think it was done in a way that was 
Uh, I'm not saying parents didn't do it in, in the in this time period because I'm in the same boat that you are. Uh, but I, I thought it was a nice change of pace for our parents being absent. And I particularly thought it was a nice change of pace because we have almost that uh, resistance of the call to action. If you go by the J- Joseph Campbell model, uh, you have almost that that resisting the call to action when he doesn't want the agency. He wants to call mom and dad. Right. <laughs> well, she wants them gone so she can have a party. Sure. So she- yeah, um, it's one of the th- things yeah, because that makes me... The, see, Drew, the people who weren't geeks like you and I threw parties when their parents went out of town. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And I, I think people should know, uh, it is not me saying that this is a bad thing that the parents leave the kids alone. It's just drawing attention to the fact that this is a thing that happened in the 80s where our parents trusted enough to leave us alone. With guns? Not me, but, uh, you know, <laughs> again... It is very much. A I I never thought of it at the time, but I'm there was a twenty two rifle in my attic. Yeah, I I, I never even dawned on me. I, I think I just had that realization just now. But yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, before we, unless you have a good, bad, or ugly, you want to add to this? No, I think that's covered pretty much everything I wanted to chat about at this point. Um, we don't often talk about like the the deeper uh folks behind the lens i do want to mention tibor takis because takis did create the the gate i madman another classic one i did watch when i was a kid the gate 2 um then there's Wait, a whole the, the fact that he's involved in the sequel is why i want to see it that's right that's because it's it's him at least What's crazy is then there's a whole series of these early 2000s straight-to-video right. bad asylum-like movies like That's Ice not the Spiders. crazy part. That's not the crazy part. I know. Ice Spiders, which I own. Mega Snake, which I own. And now Timur Takis <laughs> uh, is directing a whole slew of Hallmark Christmas movies. Um, and, I mean, bless him for being able to find work. Sure. Uh, and, and consistent work. In fact... Um, several of the folks, the uh, Nankin, the the writers, is has directed fifty seven plus episodes of television, um, some really great shows. So um, you know, it, it's nice that folks who do these early things. I mean, this this is a film that was profitable. It's a Canadian American. I, I guess it's. I don't want to say it's an independent film. It, it it had a budget, but like it did well enough that people had careers. We mentioned the special effects. So Randall William Cook is responsible for the, a lot of the visual effects. Uh, Randall William Cook is also responsible for some of the, not the creature effects, but some of the visual effects we find in The Thing, uh, Q-Winged Serpent, Ghostbusters, Fright Night, uh, and later on, The Lord of the Rings. So there's, again, there's some quality folks behind sure. uh, behind this. The score, which I actually quite liked and have been listening to, the composer, Michael Hong, is, uh did the Max Headroom TV show. Yes. The movie The Wraith, which you and I, I know, have discussed as a possible kid's in cars and has been discussed it was brought to my attention by somebody on my other podcast yeah the blob 1988's the blob something under other podcasts right. uh one of my favorite movies of all time the television show eerie indiana which, oh, which i loved which i which loved. could very easily be just a kids on bikes episode in and of itself and the video game series boulders gate <laughs> So uh, something that I have spent way too much time of my life uh, playing. So, yeah. So uh, these folks have not only been a part, uh, would have been a part of my childhood had I watched it in 87, but have been a part of my life in one form or another, uh, which is kind of just nice to kind of see it. Other things to mean to mention, Terry in this film says the line, don't have a cow. <laughs> this movie came out in 1987. The Simpsons did not premiere until 1989. Am I saying that the Simpsons stole this from the gate? 
Probably not. It's probably a line. It's probably existed in other movies. But to have see kids say that to one another, uh, and that is the not the only great line that one kid says to another kid. Uh, Eat your own feet. Oh my god, there's so many good. Suck ones. my nose till my head caves in. Yeah, good stuff. There's bad things said from one kid to another, but these are the good ones. Yes. Yeah, Rafe, I really like this film. I know, I did too. I did too. And as you know, I didn't have a time to watch it a second time because, as I said, I just watched it last night. Yeah. But as the camera is going into each of the kids' rooms in those establishing moments, I was like, "Here's where Drew is pausing it to take a look at what's going on." I don't have time to do it, but Drew will do the work for me. <laughs> Rafe, do you want? Do you want to know? Do you want to hear the list of things I have I have written down that are, appear in each of the kids' rooms? Uh, do I need to write them next to my Killer Dwarfs reference from Terry's jacket? Oh, man, Terry's jacket. Terry has the most boss clothes. He's wearing a Killer Dwarfs jean vest. Yes. With a Masters of the Universe t-shirt underneath. Love Terry. <laughs> uh, Terry's room, which is in a basement, is covered in metal posters, like heavy metal bands. So we've got our cramps. We've got Iron Maiden, Slayer, Megadeth, Ozzy Osbourne's in there. But what I love about these posters is underneath, behind the posters, you can see that it's clear that he had a Huey Lewis in the News poster up in his wall, and he has been putting metal up over it. Now, we also learn really early on from Glenn and Al's parents that Terry has uh, abandonment issues because his father is never around. Uh, so there is your, your bad-behaving right. parent. And that his mother has recently passed away. So it's clear that Terry is going through something and has turned to metal as a as a way to kind of get a release. So he's sitting in, in his basement next to his drum kit with all these posters. But that's not the only decorations he has in his room. Uh, in one corner of the room, he has a kite. What kind of kite is it? Well, it's GoBots. It is Oh, I thought it was Transformers. It's Psykill, the leader oh of the evil uh, robots in GoBots. Uh, and he has a Voltron figure yeah. in, in there, a, a big one, which is really cool. You go into Al's, and it's, you know, we don't have a lot of girls' rooms. Uh, that we get a chance to discuss and pause. Like we, some t I think we saw a little bit of Jane and Wendy's in Frog Dreaming. Yes, but mostly just the beds up against the window. Right. Yeah. So we don't get a chance to explore. Um, we talked uh, in fairly decent detail about Beverly's from It. Um, but we get a, a full view almost entirely of Al's room. It's very clean. There's not a lot of personality, and it's filled with space posters and rockets and rocket trophies. So but I get the impression, because she is cleaning out her room yes. at the beginning of the movie, I think the reason it's clean and devoid of a lot of personality is because she is transitioning from, she is, it is the time for putting away of childhood stuff. And she hasn't. Well, and yet. that was my next point. I was going to make yeah. is is that it is never really said, but it is shown, and it is done in such a really wonderful way that Alice is dealing with her own change, and she is growing up, and kind of separating from from Glenn in a way who is much younger than she is. There is the scene where Al is looking at herself in the mirror, mm -hmm. and she's wearing a onesie, and she's looking at her body. And what I appreciate is, as no point in time in this movie is she sexualized, you no. know, because she is a 16-year-old. She and, is a child. And as a movie that had the vibe of John Carpenter and Phantasm and Evil Dead, I was waiting for it to happen, and it didn't. And I was very, very thankful for that. So, you know, this takes place in 1987. Um, we have these coming-of-age teenage romance stories, these John Hughes films, right, which... Now, when you look at them, they are so incredibly problematic, and it, it so easily could have referenced those and made some pretty difficult stuff. And, and there is some questionable 
behavior by the boys and maybe some of the girls like the Lee sisters, but Al is not that person. And, but Al is considering whether or not she wants to be that person. And I think that that discussion, which is happening in her head is visible to the viewers. And it's, I think it's really, really well done because it's clear that she cares about Glenn, but she's also trying to become her own person. And I feel like Glenn and Al, even her not going by Al, but going Alexandra, she is separating from Glenn. It's clear that rockets meant a lot to her and, and space and NASA and all of that meant a lot to her. And she's getting rid of that, trying sure. to figure out who she is. So she's like kind of separating the two. She's cutting that cord, which I think is really interesting. Then you get to Glenn's room, which is a treasure trove of 80s nostalgia. Right. Let me tell you, Daredevil poster, Alien Legion poster, stacks of comic books. I'm just squeeing all over. He's got a, a, a his has a whole uh, row of albums. He's got the Grease album. The thing that and I and before the show, I told uh, Rafe view, listeners, Rafe, do not allow me to go off on Robostrux and Zoids. So I'm just going to say this: He had Slither. He had Terox. I forgot what the gorilla's name is, and I forgot what the uh, pterodon's name is, but this was one of my favorite toys as a kid. I, did you have Robostrux? I had no Robostrux. I had uh, a couple of Zoids. Yeah, so Robostrux and Zoids are kind of the they're the same company. Tomy put them out, but they changed their names. I think they first came out in like 1982, so by the time this came out, I think it was Robostrux. They might have been Zoids earlier. It's been a while, but this is one of those things where my dad would come home and he would buy these model kits, and the model kits came with um, little motors that you would mm-hmm. wind up, and if you put them together correctly, they would move, and they had these little uh, gold riders who would travel in the cockpits. Yep. They were giant robots that looked like creatures. I love giant robots. I love giant creatures. I love putting things together. These are some of my favorite toys. I haven't thought of them in years. And just looking at this kid's room just took me back. Uh, we get into his closet. There's more Robostrux boxes. The original Star Wars board game. A, Which a ton I of, had. ton of classic uh, 80s board games. Anyway, that that is the end of my nostalgia. But you know I love looking at rooms. And I feel like each one of these rooms absolutely and directly reflects the kid who's in them. So... Speaking of kids, Rafe, (laughs) I know you love this. I know you love this more than life itself. There's a lot of teenagers in this. Now, admittedly, only five or six of them have names. Uh, But which kid in this movie are you? Of the ones depicted, which one are you most like when you were that age? When I was that age, I probably, and for quite a while afterwards, I think, I probably was Al. Yeah? in exactly what we were just talking about, that idea of I'm older now, so I need to reinvent myself, hiding away the toys in order to try and get the attention of the girl or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I I mean, it, also people our age know that uh, when we were growing up in the 80s, geek was not chic, baby. It no. was not the age of the geek. It was, you were a loser. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I, identify. that's part of why I identified it when I saw her room was, it was like, cause I've been there. I, I know what that's like to like, okay, I'm going to hide this part of myself and reinvent myself in a way that will, uh, attract, uh, the, uh, the opposite sex in particular, which is exactly what she's doing because she has a guy who's potentially interested and she's trying to hook him. Yeah. Well, it's a subplot. It's a very subtle subplot, but it's a I subplot. I feel like, 
the Lee sisters are trying to hook him, and she is... No, I think she's not sure. I think she immediately regrets throwing a party in her house. Yeah. Um, when I think most good kids probably do. <laughs> or at least one... Um, I, I was Glenn. I mean, without fail, I was Glenn. <laughs> I talk about being a spaz, but I was also a very sensitive kid. And I think him wanting to call his parents... His obsession with rockets, his his uh, obsession with robo trucks and comic books and stuff like that. I was so much him. I wish I could say it was Terry, because Terry is it seems a lot more confident and self assured. That didn't come for uh, another four or five years. I feel like Terry's a couple of years older than Glenn, um, and definitely between the ages of Alan and, and Glenn somewhere. Can we just agree? Speaking yes. about the model rockets, those model rockets did not get ignited by a match. When we were kids, they, they, you had to have the electron, the electric battery operated launch system that sent the charge into the, en- the engine pack. I agree, but I'm pretty sure there were ones that you could light with a match. Okay. Uh, the, I, the ones I used, I used a lot of the single engine rockets. All of them were, were themed around penguins. I was obsessed with penguins at that age for some reason. Penguins and Bruce Lee films. Anyway. Like that was the other thing that really hit home because I remember like going to the store. Now we need to find home video footage of Drew's bedroom and pause it and take stock of what we see. <laughs> oh man, I, I have some photographs I can send you. It's pretty. It's it looks a lot like Glenn's, but Glenn's is kind of clean. <laughs> Mine was not. So there we go. I uh, now. It comes time for us to rate our films. And and for those who are just joining us, wow, this is probably very weird if you're just joining us with this episode. But uh, we do two uh, ratings. Uh, We do it on a scale. So the first one is how good of a film is it? Right? One to ten, ten being the best, one being lowest. Uh, And then the second is how good is it within the kids on bikes genre? So just to give folks an idea, you know, we have this is our 11th film. So, Rafe, out of the 11 films, where do you rate this? How good of a film is this for you? I liked this movie. I mean, it's, as I said, it's, I've mentioned numerous times of its era and of its genre. It is definitely a product of its time. But all in all, I, I had a lot of fun with this. I, I think I'm, I'm looking at how I've ranked some of the other movies. And again, we've, we've talked about maybe readdressing some of these rankings for the Sure, yeah. But I think uh, 7.5... Eight feels the right area, and I do have Goonies and Super Eight already at eight. Uh, I'm going to put it at seven point five as far as how good of a movie seven point five. Gotcha. That's really cool. I am also going to give it a seven point five, and the reason that I'm going to give it a seven point five, I was looking at other movies, and I think I mentioned earlier The Lost Boys, and I feel like this film is on par with The Lost Boys. Both have their strengths as far as films are concerned, and they have some weaknesses, but I think. Lost Boys is also a very similar... It feels more like a teenage mm-hmm. introduction gateway horror film, and this is more of a preteen horror film introduction. Uh, but, man, it really won me over with the uh, stop-motion monsters <laughs> and demons. <laughs> they it really, awesome. really did. Were they a threat? I think it's. I think those creatures are probably would have given me nightmares as a kid, and sure. the the workman I think was far more scary than the demons were. The idea of a, a corpse that that is like hiding in the walls of your house is is pretty cool. That has a poltergeist like yes. quality to it. All right, so we're both seven point five with that one, 
Now we are, it's time to uh, rate them based on how good of a Kids on Bikes movie it is. And when we look at a Kids on Bikes movie, we want to look at, do the kids have agency? We want to look at the kids individually and, and who they are. Uh, we want to look at the locations and how specific that is to the plot. With that in mind, how are you going to rate this film? So we give it a 70.5 as a, a film overall. How would you rate it as a Kids on Bikes film, especially compared to some of the other the movies that we've rated? I think this is a pretty Kids on Bikes film out of the ones we've watched. I'm pretty happy about that side of things because I, I, I mean, I remember picking Stand By Me and being bummed because here's a movie I love and it doesn't really meet our criteria. And this one does. They are kids. There's no doubt about it. They have the agency. Their parents are nowhere nearby. There's nobody checking on them. There's nobody responsible beyond our protagonists. So I, I, I'd say I don't, again, I, I mentioned earlier, I don't know that the location is central to the plot other than it is a, their house mm-hmm. and it has the gate in it but that doesn't right i mean they could have this what city is this in yeah you know you we don't even know, know the town name but I, I think that aside i think this is pretty high up there i'm going to give it an uh, eight and a half wow that is really impressive uh that is that is less than now and then but more than uh let's see you have goonies you've got it now and then and then the gate Yep. For a film that you had never seen before. That's impressive. Rafe, you're going to be disappointed in what I give it. I'm going to give it a six. Okay. I'm not disappointed. And here's why. Uh, I think it might be one of the best agency movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. The location is... So the tricky thing is this starts to teeter on the edge of a horror film rather than a kids on bikes film. Like a haunted house movie rather than a kids on bikes. Because other than the opening shot and the shot of characters that aren't glenn <laughs> glenn our kind of main protagonist is in the house the entire time and yeah. even though he has agency he doesn't get to go anywhere well, the opening grounded. shot of i know he's grounded i know it's important <laughs> the opening shot of him riding through suburbia suburbia it's perfect you, you want a kids on bikes movie you got to have suburbia but they yep. never get a chance to explore it and the reason i'm not giving it more is the same reason that you gave super eight such a low score which is by the end of the film even though uh, Terry and Al have been really excellent as a team, the entire third act, Glenn is running solo on this one. And that's the only reason it falls down for me is that it becomes more about Glenn's journey than a kid's on bike. It is a kid alone. At, it's, a, it's a home alone movie, but instead of uh, wet bandits, it's demons. I'm going to address why that doesn't bother me here in a minute. Okay, please do. Draft, because they, they, I have a counter to that. And the reason okay. why, it, because I, you're right, I have pointed that out in, you know, Super 8, in, in It to some degree. Uh, I have pointed that out as a flaw before. Um, I don't think it's as big a flaw here. And I, again, in a second, we'll get into the draft and I'll explain there why I don't think it's as big a deal. Okay. All right. Well, we'll wait until the draft. Uh, so I gave it a six. And you gave it uh, an 8.5. Yep. All right. Nice. Fantastic. Well, uh, I mean, saying that this is ours and apparently everybody else's favorite part of the the podcast is seems to be an understatement because I think about this almost more <laughs> than the movie itself. Uh, and as we are as we are getting closer to the end, we only have one more episode to go. Our teams are only going to, after this draft, are only going to get one more kid each. Uh, and then we're going to have to pare it down from 
from 12, you know, 11 kids and one peripheral adult, to seven kids and one peripheral adult. We're going to get rid of four kids per team. And I... I am panicking a little um, because I, I have there's between two movies for my final selection mm. and I have an idea of kind of who I would like, but then I don't get to choose them because it's, if it's uses your selection, I get to go first next month. It'll be my selection. You'll get to go first. So I don't know how we're going to do this, but uh, you chose, I get to select first. I'm really curious to see who you think I'm going to get. But before I select, I want to say this. I think Al might be the single best female character in any of the movies that we have seen so far. I really think that she's kind of astounding as a big sister. I feel like her relationship with both her parents, her friends, and her little brother are all very apparent on the screen. I think she's incredibly competent. I think she's smart without uh, falling into the trap of being nerdy. I think she's social without being kind of a, a mean about it. She is, and this is weird... I think the only babysitter character that we have seen in any of the movies that we've discussed. Uh, well, Andy in The Goonies is a babysitter. She's not their babysitter at the time. That's true. But she is a babysitter. Yes. But we don't actually get to see her, and Correct. she's specifically in this case. So, so here's the thing with this trio of characters, the main, the main characters. Yes, please. I, I'm assuming neither of us are going to go for the Lee sisters or the other people from the, the party, although one of, them, one of them's potentially of interest to me. So. Now, are you thinking about Paula? Are you thinking about Paula? <laughs> Paula is interesting. But I, here's the thing with, yeah. our, main, with our main trio. Yes. Um, you watch uh, other movies that we've talked about. You watch Super 8. You watch Goonies. You watch It. Okay, our main character, in this case, Glenn, is the leader of the group. And everybody, you know, follows his lead. And, and then everybody else has kind of their specialty. So you've got, in Goonies, you've got Data, who's, you know, the inventor. And you've got Mouth, who's the fast talker. And Chunk, you know, Chunk is Chunk. Um, but Glenn's not the leader in this movie. Glenn, Al is the leader. Al, they, the yeah. boys do what Al says. They do not argue. They do not give her a hard time. And Terry is the brains of the operation. He's the one that knows what is happening. He's the one who brings or, or thinks he knows what's happening. He happens to be right. But so Glenn is actually in the in the hierarchy of importance, even though he's our main protagonist, even though he's the only one left in the third act, he's kind of the least important of the three characters, which is why I don't have a problem with it, because he's just trying to survive at that point, as opposed to suffering from Cody Walpole syndrome. In fact, when they show the shot early on in the movie of where he set the roof on fire, firing the rocket, my thought was, this is the poor, this is the the, cro- the, uh, the, the Kmart version of Cody Walpole. <laughs> in, in, in many ways, yeah. And you're right, what's interesting too, because you have Glenn and Al who are both the rocket kids and you think, right. oh, that that's kind of signalizes brainy. They have they have other skills. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting group. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not gonna pick glenn um i know you're not i yeah. know you're, you're gonna pick terry i'm gonna pick terry absolutely you're gonna pick terry yeah because <laughs> listen it's it might be just for the jacket it might just be for the killer dwarf's jacket i remember watching this in march of 22 and going there's no way rafe is gonna pick this <laughs> because if if i have to throw this out there he's gonna get terry and the more i thought about it it's like it's actually not a bad thing because i think uh al is a it's a, a really good character. But yeah, I'm no, I, I have to go with Terry. And I have of a lot of good reasons. And I and I think Terry does create some problems with my team dynamic, especially with um, Richie. 
from last time. Because mm. um, I don't know if I can have two kids with glasses. I But anyway. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. All right. So if I've got Richie, who are you taking? Is it, It's going to be Paula, the levitation enthusiast? Ah, it's tempting. It, it really is tempting. Part of the problem with you not with you not picking Glenn, part of the reason you didn't pick Glenn, is is Glenn, what Glenn, he's not the brains of the operation. He's yeah. not the leader. He is the heart. And that doesn't yes. fit in your group. That doesn't no. fit in your group at all. Totally fits in my group. Well, you can't have five, seven um, heart characters. It, it, you're not going to get anything done. Oh, and I would also like to point, point this out. I've chosen Terry, yet another character from my team that is missing parents. Yeah. Almost every character with the exception of Data has dead parents. You're the Disney movie approach I over am. here. That's I have are. a team of Disney orphans. It's true. But, but it, it falls into a good aesthetic. Um, no, uh, Glenn would fit really well in my team because he, he does, he is the heart. I mean, that's, that's his role. He is, Mm -hmm. he is wide eyed, enthusiastic. He cares. And and that's why I'm picking him. He does fit my team better. Like Terry does not fit my team at all. As soon as I figured out, okay, that's who Drew's going to pick. I was like, good, because he doesn't fit my team. He's a cool character. And Al is a cool character and I'm very tempted to take her. But again, it goes back to that she's the boss of this group, and I am. I'm Mikey was my first. He's not going anywhere. He's the boss of my group. He's my leader. He's my heart and soul. I don't need it. So I just think, as far as can the I say goes, something? Sure. I want you to consider this, and I'm only saying this now so that you don't regret it later. You may or may not keep Jane from Frog Dreaming. True. But I want you to imagine Jane and Al on the same team. <laughs> that's that's all I'm gonna say, and I just I don't want you to later on go, oh Jane is such a good character, but she needs an older sibling to play off of. So that's that's I'm just throwing that out there. I I am going to stick with Glenn for okay. a a a smart aleck comment I made a second ago. He is the Kroger version of Cody Walpole, and I don't have one of those. Okay, that's true. <laughs> you don't have a gadget guy. That's yeah. All right. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Well, there may be another chance at that later after my my selection, depending on which one I go with. Yeah, I do but like Al. Go. She she really is a, a great character. She's a really well written. But yeah, but there you go. So those are our picks. Um, stay tuned. In a few minutes, we'll be back and discuss our role playing game portion of the podcast. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. The show really feels like just kicking back with us at home and chatting about monsters and tragedies, but having a few laughs along the way. Just like we'd be doing if the mics were off, frankly. (laughs) You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Forever and ever and ever.
Welcome back. Uh, we are now going to discuss how we can gamify this film so that anyone can play a role-playing game session inspired by the movie, regardless of the system that they are using. Now, the first thing that we always go for is what happens with session zero. The discussions that you will need to have with your players before you actually start beginning to play the game. Now, that usually includes things like the genre, the ratings, uh, as well as what you won't be including in this game. Uh, Rafe, you may have something to throw in here, but I could only think of one thing that was important to discuss with our characters, uh, and that is, and it's something that it's important for my, for me to, for my players to have agency in the decisions and what happens. But as we watch this movie, no matter what the players, the characters did, they were going to open that gate, right? Because they weren't going to be told that they had opened the gate until after the gate happened. I mean, it seems so improbable that they would require the portal to be opened, blood to be spilled, a levitation ritual to be, a sacrifice. uh, You know, like none of those things were in their control. So I just need to discuss with my players, players, your actions will open the gate. You cannot stop it. You won't know what actions that you do will be a part of the ritual until they're actually done. And then halfway through the adventure, you are going to find a document that will explain, whoops, this is kind of what happened. I would add the caveat in because you because you're right, saying telling them flat out that they will open the gate. That that is could be viewed as railroading your players, you know. Right. There's nothing it's inevitable, there's nothing they can do about it. But I would go in order to make sure them the players feel like they have agency, to make sure that they don't feel like they're being railroaded is I would tell them that there's no guarantee that they'll be able to close it. <laughs> Well, <laughs> because yes. there was because there was a part of me that kind of wanted to just screw the gate. Let's do the world after the gate is open. Let's talk about a game set in that environment. <laughs> well, we again, I haven't seen Gate Two Trespassers, so Neither have let's I. See what could, that could happen. You no, know, you're absolutely right. Like, and I think the the important thing is while, and we'll go into our truths about the game next. But it's one of those things where, yeah, they can't stop it. Like, whatever they do is going to be what triggers it. And I think it's going to be funnier for the players because we're going to be, you know, the, the important thing with your, your session zero is your players also have to agree that they want to be playing in a, in a gate-inspired session. Mm-hmm. They should be aware of that. And part of that is you got to open the gate, right? Like, you have to open the gate. If you don't, there's no game. Right. Right. Like it's it's like when people joke like, why did that happen in the movie? Because if it didn't happen, there would be no movie. (laughs) Um, So that when we discuss the truths, Rafe and I have discussed our various uh, game mastering preparation scenarios. And mine is usually I come up with a couple of truths. No matter what happens, these things are always going to be true. And then I usually let my players kind of lead and dictate uh, where the action I'm very much and have become very much a play to see where the game goes. Um Here are the truths that I think if you stick to these seven truths, and it seems like a lot, you could probably drop a couple of these, but if you follow these seven truths, your game, regardless of the situation or whatever system you're using, is going to feel like this film. First off, it has to take place either on a weekend or a summer break. We have no concept of if it's summer, they're they're going to the beach, but this could be suburbia in Florida for all we know. Um, in fact, it would make sense if it was Florida because everyone seems to be obsessed with rockets. And this is, of course, the 80s. This is the Challenger has just happened. Um, so it makes sense that space exploration was a, a big thing. In fact, at that age, oh, my God, I just realized I went to space camp at the same age that Glenn was. And I think I had the same haircut. You really were Glenn. <laughs> I really was Glenn. Glenn might be. If Glenn, if you just, Glenn calling for mom and dad, if Glenn just started more, we saw Glenn starting more fires 
that would have been kind of me. Uh, the sensitive kid who starts fires. Okay. So the, the, the important part of this is school is not going to be an issue. And why does this matter? Well, in school, you can recruit other kids. In school, you could prep for something. In school, you could get another adult to help you out. Um, the Heck, in fact- school, you just get away from the building. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they were going to school, then you would put the gate in the school. But part of it is just it, it's clear that these kids have some free time on their hands. Truth number two, there are no adults to back the PCs up, and there is no way to communicate with parents. Because the moment you try to communicate with parents, your phone's going to catch on fire. Uh, <laughs> it's a good effect. It's a very mm-hmm. cool effect. This is, this is truth number three, a base under siege or haunted house story. Um, and it's a ratcheting base under siege and haunted house story. So you will get heralds um, that will let you know things are happening um, and you will get more information once you find the document that kind of explains the situation that you found yourself in. But this is also a ticking clock. Truth number four, the parents will be home in three days. I like the idea that it could be a long weekend. I like the idea that it the parents will return right. or adults will come back. Now, if you wanted to play this a little, in a little bit more of the horror realm, it could be the ticking clock where you just have to survive for three days. Um, but, but let's be. But but here's the thing, Drew. We've we've opened the gate to hell. Mm-hmm. How much threat does the parents coming home in three days really entail? <laughs> it's true. And when do you think the parents do come home? They pick you up until you have to squeeze their faces like a rotten pumpkin. Yeah. Um, so I I don't know that that's as as ticking a clock as you think it is. But yes. Right. But it gives you like if you want to make it feel like this movie, you've got to home alone it. Right. Like this is home alone with with demons. You've got to defeat the demons before the parents come home. And then if you manage to do that ahead of time, then we got to do a clean house cleaning montage. So it looks as though nothing's ever happened. You think they'll notice? <laughs> do you think they'll notice? <laughs> Number five, players have no control over the gate, how the gate opens. And that we already mentioned that one. But I think that's important because, again, you don't want them to feel like they're railroaded. And that's the only reason why we, we mentioned that in the session zero. Uh, the PCs do not adventure in isolation. There needs to be a public interaction. Um, so it's not just your playing characters in a, an abandoned house or part of this story is the anxiety and social, like people are popping in. It's the eighties. People show up and come into their house without knocking. Like <laughs> there are boys hiding in a closet, uh, oh, ready right. to party. And it's in completely inconsequential. Um, and characters, we see characters coming and going. There's, there's a whole segment where we see a character trying to get rid of a dog's body and not a butler, um, for like three minutes of the movie. I didn't, I didn't get that reaction in on the good, the bad and the ugly, but that's, that's in my notes about Terry's mom. That's just messed up. And then it being the dead dog is somehow made it worse. Oh, I know. (laughs) I know. And how bad does Terry feel? Um, like, and I'm not sure if, if Angus dies. Oh, by the way. Um, I didn't mention this, but uh, Rafe, congratulations, you have a dog. Um, because, oh, right. Because Glenn absolutely 100% comes with Angus. And I think when we finally see your your completed group, if Glenn makes it, uh, I think having a dog on your team is is very cool. And it's only the second film where that has become a possibility. Right, because we talked about it in uh, The Lost Boys. Lost Boys, right? Nanook. And then number seven, the way to close the gate is vaguely defined. <laughs> Um, vaguely being uh, an understatement. <laughs> right. I think if your players, I think you give them a fortune cookie way to close it. You know, something vague, something exciting, 
and however the players interpret it, if they feel justified, like, you know, if you have players who are just trying to defeat the game without caring about the 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 flavor of it, I'm sorry, that's a bummer. Um, but if they can justify closing the gate with their actions, if they can turn to you and go, listen, they said it needs to be uh, an, an action of pure love and light, and I'm doing this, you know, it's a rocket that explodes, and it's a rocket that was that my sister gave me the rocket for my birthday and I gave her the engine for her birthday. And that's a symbol of our love. And the whole point of this movie is our, our moving away from each other. But the thing that we love together is rockets and it explodes. That should defeat Satan, right? Sure. Um, sure. Like I if you tell me it. that and you roll well enough, I say, yes, absolutely. Um, but I think, I think it has to be justified, but also vaguely defined. Yeah. And those are the truths. I think you follow those regards to the system that you're using, then I, I think you've got yourself uh, the gate. I, I totally agree. Anything you want to add? No. Before no, we no, move on? No. I, 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 as I said, I totally agree. I think that that captures the truths of the movie, of the story, uh, very well. So, now we come to the portion where I explain uh, minutia rules for 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> and that is definitely not going to happen. So, so tell so us here's... about Zoids, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Man, they were so cool. You said these little cool rubber things that fit over the screw marks. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just there for aesthetics, but it just it made all the difference in the world. Anyway, rather than coming up with mechanics, I just want to mention this last thing, and I'm calling this demons aren't going to ring the doorbell. If you want to... <sighs> I think the rules that governing it... And its its effect over dairy can be simplified and kind of can be applied to this. So I'm not really going to go into the into those in detail. Uh, listen to the last month's episode on it to really kind of see how a being slowly enters and takes power over a location. True, some I, people are still listening to last month's episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say this: uh, if you are Going with the theme of of this film, uh, the following works for the gate opening. Uh, the first thing you get are the heralds, and those are the moths. Uh, second are the visions, so very similar to its illusions. So stuff like Terry's mom or the moving things in the the walls, things that don't aren't physically interacting with you per se. Uh, the third are the minions, the possession, and the manifestations. God, those minions are fantastic, but we have characters getting possessed and doing things that they don't want to. Manifestations coming out of thin air, arms, hands, creatures. And then finally, the lord, the 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 demon lord, whatever that thing is. So cool looking. Um, so that is an actual physical representation, and you have to defeat the 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 lord, the the the, the prince, the whatever, um, in order to excise your home. Uh, yeah. A couple of set pieces. And, you know, sometimes we, we refer to set pieces as being physical locations, and sometimes set pieces are moments that happen in a film. I think, and, I, and Rafe, you know this just from, from playing with me, um, I really like dream sequences, um, giving you hints and clues as to what's going to be happening later in the game. And just like we get two dream sequences that are questionable about whether they're dream sequences because the events that happen in the dreams directly affect the things like lightning hitting your treehouse the next morning people are i mean those are some very effective workers they're mm -hmm. out there chopping like it would take weeks to get them to come nowadays so yeah opening dreams hints of what's happening and then um at some point in time in the party we hear um some ghost stories that are happening at the party i think you should ask a player to come up with 
a campfire story. Again, like our um, Stand By Me, give your players a chance to kind of create a little bit mood and atmosphere, but then whatever they're describing in the same way, like say Ghostbusters, you know, whatever pops into your head, then an aspect of that ghost story needs to come to life at some point in time in the story. I think you put those in there and it really kind of adds the little finishing touches on on it. I think you, uh, I'm going to go a little more physical with set pieces, you know, yes. establish establish where the gate is going to be, if it's going to be in their home, get the players to create the home. You know, where the, does it have that uh, Brady Bunch-esque floating stairway like we had in this movie? Or, you know, is it a, a, a laid out like a ranch and therefore it's all flat? Or, you know, where are their rooms? Where are their rooms in conjunction with each other? And therefore you also, I mean, if it's going to be at the school, Drew mentioned earlier, if they're having school, then it's going to be at the school, then, you know, do the players get some insight into that? Take the the ideas that are in kids on bikes as far as like building the town, the location, and kind of apply those to the speci- specific location where the gate is going to be, their home, school, wherever you're going to put it. And that also then gives us uh, the party. You did mention the ghost stories being told at the party. We'll have the party. Yeah, you know, and it gives, yeah, we'll gives you an party. opportunity for that socialization that Drew mentioned in the truths, uh, and also um, gets you to get in some other characters and get some clues in there and and have some fun with it and break up. You know, again, that's one of the things I like about this is that you know, the party happens before all hell breaks loose, <laughs> proverbially, and 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 is part of why it is a slow build, but yet it's a fun movie still until it just goes all out full throttle. Yeah, I think also, too, um, in the same way that if you're, you are using Kids on Bikes as a system, create those relationships, even if they don't really have any kind of lasting effect on the plot or on the game. But it is always fun to play those characters like, who at the party does your character have a crush on? Sure. Uh, who at the party is your best friend? Who at the party? So and so. Oh, 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 start with the party. Start yeah. with the party. Yeah. Yeah, in my notes, I, I think starting with the party makes a lot of sense. Unless I would start with a dream sequence and then have the party. Or um, maybe there's something that happens at the party is what opens the portal. So you could, rather than having the lightning storm, the 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 blood dropping in there, the party, the, whatever party game creates. And again, that's the kind of the joy of not explaining to your players how the gate is needs to open, but having them have their actions and then retroactively telling them, oh, it was when you did this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you should, you put, you put a seventh umbrella in your drink and that was all that was required <laughs> to put the final nail in the, to open the gate. So the, the last thing I just want to play off of that is way back in our, uh, second story, uh, second episode story, attack the block. We discussed where people were as far as neighborhoods. I don't think you have to explain the neighborhood, but I think some of the rules that we discussed in the creation of the apartment complex works really well. Um, for this. In fact, you could do an attack the block, the gate. I was going to say, the house fortifications that we talked about in mm-hmm. that episode kind of come into play here, depending on how home alone you want to go with yeah. the demons attacking. Yeah, See, home alone is definitely not a kids on bikes movie, right? Like, it's, it is it's very much a base under siege. Um, I, I think it's it's very different, especially because Kevin McAllister is, is running solo in that. Right. Now, had it been a group, that's kind of what makes a kids on bikes movie a kids on bikes movie. Systems for play, I mean, clearly Kids on Bikes, Junior Braves, but um, the fact that the demons are referred to multiple times as old ones in this movie, I mean, Call of Cthulhu would work. I want to throw something out that's just kind of funny. There's a reference to, uh, I think, Mrs. Vandegrift, who's like the old babysitter who, like, they, they don't want her coming over. Right. You potentially could do a Brindlewood Bay Kids on Bikes mashup and have a ba- You could have a babysitter, 
being there for it like a don't tell mom the babysitter's dead but like don't tell mom the babysitter defended your house from cthulhu it does take away from the agency of the kids um but we do talk about a uh, peripheral adult there is a way to kind of maybe do this with brindlewood bay maybe one of the nephews has has um summoned it and it's up to the ladies of brindlewood bay to to stop it monster of the week i would go with monster of the week monster of the week would work really well the only tricky thing with monster of the week is um for the most part there's it really suggests you don't have the same playbook for every player. Right. And that's, that's real tricky. Uh, you know, like last time we mentioned Savage Worlds, um, there's a lot of ways to create characters. It's considered a flaw to be for them to be youthful, um, which is silly because that's, you know, the point of it. But it's also expected that um, Savage Worlds, you're not normally playing all as kids. Um, it's only a flaw when only one of your characters is a kid because physically they're not going to be the same. It's kind of silly, but it is. Rafe, do you have any more questions for me as far as gaming aspects of it? It's time for a question for Drew. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. So a minute ago, or five minutes ago, you know, time is relative, uh, you talked about how you enjoy utilizing dream sequences to pass on information and give clues and that kind of stuff. I have done this recently with my own campaign. Uh, I had uh, an evening where each of the characters had a dream right before they leveled up that kind of gave me some insight into their character's mentality, gave them the opportunity to roleplay, et cetera, et cetera. So they're a sequence, they're an event that both of us are fans of using. Have you ever... Would you ever, and if so, how, how do you run a dream sequence without letting the players know that it is a dream sequence? (laughs) Oh, that's such a good question, Rafe. So that is tricky when you are using multiple actual players, because if you, if you don't tell them it's a dream sequence, the players are going to try to insert themselves. And I guess if they try to insert themselves, you just run it like a normal scene and then you come to the most exciting point in that scene and that's when they wake up. I think more than anything else, dream sequences are just a matter of timing. Um, As long as you have given them an opportunity to get the message that you were planning on. Um, Dream sequences, I would say, maybe require, if if you're not going to let them know that it's a dream sequence, you need to know what your point of the dream is. Um, so for instance, if you were falling towards a glowing form that is beckoning you, uh, and you know, you may not know that that glowing form is eventually going to show up to be your girlfriend from the future. I, this is, I mean, completely out of nowhere. There's no way that this is referencing any game that Rafe and I have been playing for two years, but, uh, you know, it's it's the moment that your character takes that step and falls and they want to the moment they want to roll. Actually, that might be the best way to do it. When you hit a scene beat that requires an actual die roll, they roll it. You cover it before the die is exposed. Tell them they wake up and then, you know, maybe like peek under there and like let them wonder what it could have been. Uh, maybe if it was the worst possible role, then you're like, then they wake up. I don't know. Um, but yeah, and that's a good question. And I and I think the tricky thing is making sure that you're not alienating the other players. Um, right, right. Yeah. And yeah. that's and it works in the movie because it is only Glenn's dream. But that's, right, but that's, Glenn's also our POV character right. in the movie. I would have liked to have seen Terry's dream. Actually, any of those, and that's what kind of cool about this, is any of those characters could have had that same dream 
But Glenn, again, the heart character is the one who's probably going to do it. So maybe that's the other thing, too. In your zero session, figure out who the heart character is, who the brain character is, who the leader is, that kind of a thing, and and have someone, the most sensitive of the group, is going to have the dream. So there we go. All right. So join us in several weeks for our The Gate Intermission, where we're going to discuss our second opinions and what we may have missed about the film the first time around, also what we may have missed about role-playing. Uh, we're going to go over our listener emails. We're going to chat about what's grabbed our attention in crowdfunding. We're going to talk about the podcast homework, which you're going to remind us of. I am going to mention that. So our podcast homework was this. In the last episode, I asked Rafe this question, and the question is, uh, you get a chance to visit any movie set doesn't matter it's any movie set that has ever existed and someone associated with that movie set sits down with you and goes i'd like to play a one-on-one role-playing game with you so the question is what movie set is it and who is this person associated and the reason i'm saying person associated with it and not saying an actor or a director is there are so many individuals that make movies what they are that i don't know maybe rafe really wants to talk to dean cundy you know the dp of so many great films that's entirely up to him so yeah, th- that question is, what's the movie set and who is the individual? And we'll discuss Rafe's answer and my answer. And we're going to discuss, uh, we're going to find out my selection for the very last Kids on Bikes movie that we're going to be discussing for this season, yep. which is terrifying <laughs> no to pressure. think about. No <laughs> pressure. Now, if you have any reviews of your own about anything we've discussed, uh, our choices for the draft, um, whether or not you liked The Gate, uh, who you would pick in for the draft, what you would your answer would be for the, the home, podcasting homework, any of those things, um, you can let us know and join the conversation. You can find us. Uh, our email is at the Never Say Die Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Never Say Diecast. And we are on Twitter at Never Say Diecast. Thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Megan Daly for our show artwork. And remember, even if someone does suck your nose till your head caves in, never say die. Die.